I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moulds and you're listening to FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Philip Bock set out to solve one of the biggest problems faced by consumer businesses in Latin America, the lack of a localised cross-border payments infrastructure. He told me how he did it. My parents, specifically my mother, went the first time 1964 to Brazil and she fell in love with the country. She was working for Lufthansa, so she could fly at a time where it was not so common. She marries my father, who also worked for Lufthansa, and he had the chance to either move to Asia, to Hong Kong, or for Latin America, to Rio. So it's pretty obvious where we would go. So from 84 to 91, when it was a very interesting time, dictatorship ended in Brazil, and the markets opened. This is when, when we moved over there. I grew up at the beach, which was very nice. And then I started working at a company called Arvato Bertelsmann, the media group. In 2007, they gave me the opportunity to assume the country managership in Brazil. At that time, the idea was to restructure the country subsidiary, but my dream was to set up the e-commerce operation. During that time, my former roommate from Munich calls me up. He co-founded a company called Payon that was sold off for $200 million to ACI, a big payments infrastructure provider last year from the U.S., and they developed this white-label payment gateway, and he asked me if I could operationalize a customer for him. And he told me also that my company, Bertelsmann, was working with Payon at this time already. So he actually didn't care if I would do it myself or through Avato, but at that time, obviously an Avato Bertelsmann employee. And we set up the operation. On the day of the go-live, the board stops the project. Brazil was not core anymore. And we thought, wow, it's a great idea. Let's move on with that. So we spun off the business. And we did a roadshow in Europe to understand what digital merchants, startups, OVCs need when they want to do business in Brazil. During this roadshow, we figured out that the companies, the startups, or the digital merchants, or everybody that wants to sell to Brazilian consumers, were stuck with the big four auditing and tech consulting companies who gave them 200 pages papers to tell them mainly about the risks of doing business in Brazil. And so we were a little bit more pragmatic. We solve the following challenge. Only 30% of the Latin American e-commerce population has Visa, MasterCard, or Amex credit cards, which means if they want to buy a product in euros or USD, they can't. What happens at the merchant? The merchant buys traffic. They funnel the traffic to their shop. And at the end of the day, when somebody wants to press pay, they can't because they don't have the payment method, which has as a logic consequence that companies cannot strategically scale their business in this region. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if you look at Latin America, each market is local. That means that Brazilian shops sell to Brazilian consumers, Mexican to Mexicans. Mexican shops don't sell to Brazilians. Brazilians don't sell to Chileans. As a consequence, there is not a regional payment infrastructure, but something like a wallet. Yeah, But a wallet is not a payment solution that a tier one big global merchant wants to use. So they don't want to have a redirect within their shop to another page. They want to have BI. They want to manage the risk management themselves. 
They want to own the customer data. When you work with a wallet, the wallet, like a PayPal, for example, they own your customer data. And this is where we jumped in. So we identified that there is no infrastructure provider in the region that combines two things. Yeah, First, the technology layer. The technologies layer consists of two parts. One is access, meaning integration into the banks, into the acquirers. So offering all possible payment methods that are relevant for your business model. Yeah. With these direct integrations, we can offer unique features because the banks see us as a partner. So it all turns out, at the end of the day, low cost and maximum revenue. You were creating this business then in Berlin, which is not a banking center. <laughs> you know, why not do it in London or Frankfurt? First of all, I had also done internships here in the internet space and investment banking before I had worked for VC. So the idea of always becoming entrepreneurial was very important. Secondly, we're bootstrapped. And in order to finance ourselves, the most natural thing to happen was when we did this roadshow was to do consulting work in Brazil for German startups. I'm German. I had connections to German entrepreneurs from Rocket Internet who are based in Berlin. My family was also based in Berlin. A pay on the technology provider for the payments part was based in Munich, but in Germany. So I spent a lot of time in Berlin doing consulting job. For that, we got money. And with that money, we built up Alpago. So that was a little bit how everything started. And it turned out that somehow, from a logic perspective, I got stuck in Berlin because the idea of Alpago for the payment operation was to serve specifically global merchants that want to do business in Brazil slash Latin America. And these guys are either based in Asia, Europe, or the U.S. So to start off with was logic for me to start off in Berlin, Germany, where I had my biggest network. A lot of companies bootstrap. Was it something you consciously did? I would say we pretty much consciously did it due to one specific given fact. What we do to a certain extent is pioneering payments in Latin America. If you look at the big global payment companies, they were very often not able to do partnerships with local banks and acquirers. Why? Because they saw them as a competitor and they are monopolists in their markets. They have been there forever. So it's not like the cliche picture, you arrive with pearls and mirrors and whatever Western products and they're waiting for you there. It's the opposite. They're doing you a favor sometimes in working with you. And I mean, we're talking about 2009, 2010, when there was no e-commerce basically in these countries. All the banks and acquirers were looking at, at, at retail, at point of sale and not e-commerce. Yeah. So even if we had a billion dollars, we would not have been faster in closing contracts, which was the first step of our company to be able to process payment on behalf of our customers. So money was not the game changer. It was understanding how the business worked. And it was then understanding how the technical infrastructure worked, but also the legal infrastructure. Because if I had read all the Visa MasterCard regulations, hundreds of pages, yeah, we would probably never have gone live because it was totally contradictory to what the banks and acquirers practiced in Latin America at the time. So it gave you that agility exactly. to do it. Naivety gave me agility, and I can only recommend that. <laughs> What was important, if you go through stages when you build a company, the first stage is how do you survive? How do you build your minimal viable product? The second stage is get the first big customer. And this is the biggest challenge for everybody I speak to, specifically when a B2B sector, right? And my first big customer was McAfee, and specifically a person called Sally Baptiste, who really supported us, believed in us at a very early stage. And with that came big volume. She exactly had the problem that only 20% of Brazilians had credit cards, Visa MasterCards, and she was losing 80% of her traffic. And she said, if I go to a big global provider 
I will be just somebody in an irrelevant market for them. For you, it's about survival. <laughs> it's a game changer. So I know that if I trust you, which is obviously something you cannot really measure, but it is a feeling, if I trust you and obviously do due diligence, security assessment, etc., I know that you're going to work day and night to make this happen. How had you got to know her in the first place? We got an introduction through a third person. We got along very well, but we had actually never met in person before we started. It went so fast that we couldn't meet in person. We met many of the colleagues of her, and afterwards we met many times. And this third person, was that some sort of business networking? Or uh, a- That third person was a business networking, exactly. And then what happens also, these people call, let's say, their contacts in the markets, So they had called PayPal. We are a partner of PayPal. And it was actually an embarrassing moment for us because PayPal spoke very well about us. And we are also the partner of PayPal in Brazil to remit the funds. They don't remit funds. And then we implemented everything. And on the day of the go-live, McAfee says, I don't want PayPal. (laughs) So it was a terrible moment for us because we still have a very good relationship with PayPal. The Latam VP, he's a mini mentor. He was always giving us advice in crisis moments. Fortunately, it never happened again, something like that. But yeah, things you cannot influence, unfortunately. This is a global operation going from a headquarters in Berlin out across Latin American countries. That's a huge geographical divide, never mind cultural divide. How easy is it to find people who can bridge that divide? First of all, we are 35 people and we have, including myself, three Germans in the company. Yeah? <laughs> so <laughs> we specifically try to hire, build a team of people who, first of all, lived in different countries and in a perfect world, spend time in Latin America. At the beginning, for example, we hired Spanish speakers who had not spent time in Latin America. But the way of doing business is a totally different one. So they write an email, and after three days they say, the guys in Latin America are not responding. Yeah, obviously not. <laughs> what do you do? There, for example, we learned now that probably with many banks and acquirers, WhatsApp is the best mean of communication. Yeah, Communication is also like in the U.S. It's not long emails, long calls. It's quick, short information, one thing at a time, and this is what works. What you're doing is something that lots of others have done. Why do you think you've got a competitive advantage and what barriers do you have to stop others coming in and doing just what you're doing? I think, what is our USP? Our USP is, first of all, we were local. We started within the country. We could solve the most complex market from our point of view five to six years ago, which is Brazil and which makes up 45% of the e-commerce volume. So we have long-standing contracts with the incumbent payment providers, which gave us access to a wider range of a product portfolio than some competitors, for example, have. Secondly, some competitors are either global companies or local companies. And it's very hard, given the nature of Latin America, for, let's say, Brazilians to internationalize into the rest of Latin America. So you'll see in Brazil, very few people speak Spanish. Very few people in the rest of Latin America speak Portuguese. So I have a partner who grew up in Mexico. He's Spanish, but he lived there many years. So he speaks the languages. He understands the culture. So I guess our strength is to translate one culture to the other, meaning when we get a requirement from a global merchant, we can translate it into the local language and we can filter and translate back the answer. So we don't give answers unfiltered. In this business, relationships are very important. I mean, you can do contracts with banks, but we are handling a lot of money. So if something goes wrong, the best contract won't help you. And we know that the judicial system does not work efficiently in these countries. So contracts are nice to have, but trust, this is the culture. Trust is so important. 
And through this trust, we were able to be first movers in the market to launch new products, features, etc. And we are two, three years ahead, we believe, of our competition at the moment. Berlin is a good place to find people from all sorts of countries to get those sort of links. Yes, but in each country we operate in, we have teams sitting there. I think this is also a differentiator. So we don't have third parties that we use for payment processing. We have a team in Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, etc. Everywhere where we're in, this team handles the relationships and the operation with the banks. It is very costly because you need to have a country manager everywhere. I know you have to have a team everywhere. But I think this really makes a difference. So when you have a question, you speak to our Colombian country manager. She's Colombian. If you speak to Mexico, she's Mexican. And Brazil is Brazilian. And all of these people have also lived abroad or have had experiences in working with global companies. And this is really, I think, where we're different. What has been the most challenging moment? Wow, I don't know where to start, right? When you speak to people building companies, it's more challenging moments than rewarding moments. Um, we live in different countries, in different time zones with different cultures. And it's hard enough to build a team when you are in one country that understands your culture, right? But to do that in a virtual space where you have small teams in many regions, this obviously by far is the biggest challenge. We operate in markets that very often implement rules and regulations retroactively. So to give you a good example, four weeks before the World Cup in Brazil, we get an email from one of the big acquirers selling we have to deposit 150% of the external processing volume. So the entire volume that we process on behalf of our clients, we get a small percentage share for that on a bank account, let's say as a guarantee, otherwise they would turn us off. So what happens? First of all, you ask what are the terms or conditions for these guarantee? Nobody knows. You have three weeks left. Three weeks before the World Cup in Brazil, I don't have to tell you, <laughs> nothing happens. Yeah. Then you have to go to a bank, which, by the way, owns this processor, and tell him that you need this guarantee. So the first question is, are you insolvent? Why is that suddenly out of the blue? You've been operating with these guys for four years. This was, by the way, the only moment where I thought about potentially giving up. Really? Yeah. yeah. I know I was lying in a hotel, in my cheap hotel in Sao Paulo, and I was thinking, like, why the hell am I doing that to myself, right? Why do I doing that to my health, to my family, <laughs> to my friends? I mean, you give up a lot also, right? It's very rewarding, but you spend a lot of time traveling. You do extra hours. And when my friends were having their families, they were traveling, going on holidays. You were not and you were not earning money, right? Everything is a bet. It's on the exit, right? On one day, potentially. At that time, I wouldn't pay myself a salary, for example, right? And you have a wife and Now I have wife and children. But for bootstrap company entrepreneurs, I think it's a little bit like going to a casino. You put everything on 25 and yeah, it's all in, right? And you definitely don't take big chunks of money out because you reinvest everything that you have. In that moment, I was saying, okay, honestly speaking, if I had a corporate job, I would have 30 days of holidays. I would have the benefits of flying business class, staying in nice hotels. I would probably be able to call up a lawyer now and tell him to fix that for me. And if it wouldn't work, I could tell him, well, that's the way it is. It's someone else's problem. Yeah. Exactly. But you cannot quit your job. You cannot tell your clients, I'm sorry, I cannot fix it. You really have to be insistent. You have to go the extra mile. And probably one day you also have to say sorry to a few people who call you up three times to meet you for a beer and you just tell them, I can't. And they think, are you crazy? Why do you never have time? But it's really intensive sometimes, right? Yeah. The situation solved itself at the end of the day. And I think this is the most important thing. How do you turn challenges into opportunities? 
because you could always say, oh, I'm so sorry about myself. Life is tough. You know, everything is unfair. And why do I always have to solve it? Yeah. But at that time, for example, again, McAfee helped us because we had to restructure the payouts for 60 days. We had to delay them actually for 60 days. And it was also a matter of trust because they could have also thought, we are perfectly healthy. We don't have any debts, right? But who are they to know on one side? Yeah. And the second thing is that we worked so closely together with this acquirer that turned off over 100 payment companies that our contract for this deposit, first of all, turned out to be the standard. Secondly, they helped us in working out a solution that was feasible, but our entire company for two months was doing nothing else but to work on a solution. So we could partially finance this deposit. And at the end of the day, it helped us rethink our operation in a way that we now have a much more efficient cash management, which turned out to be an extra source of income for us that we wouldn't have thought about before. And obviously, because you work with people, right? So on the other side, there is a big acquirer, but within this acquirer, there are people. And the way they saw how we solved that I think, you know, the result was bonding with these people. So afterwards, everything became much easier because they suffered with us, right? <laughs> and you're here to tell the tale. Just explain where the business is at now. From a setup perspective, we are live in Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, and Argentina. This is around about 80% in terms of payment methods of the entire Latin American e-commerce volume. So if you look at the e-commerce volume, these four countries make up 80%. We are adding Chile later this year, and this is our roadmap until the end of the year. So with that, 87% is very important. Then you have Peru with 1%. Venezuela, that is very complicated with a few more percentage points. But the rest then is the fine-tuning, let's say. Yeah. So from a product perspective, this year we want to have the five top markets, which big guys do not offer because they don't have the resources. They're so busy with US and EMEA. We're now at 35 employees. In Berlin, we have our sales team, account management team, and development team. In Mexico and Brazil, we have the big operations teams for the two languages also. And time zone-wise, it's very good because 85% of our revenues comes from the U.S. In Argentina and Colombia, we have a one-man show. And we have 35 customers at the moment. Uh, These include McAfee. And Simon Tech, Salesforce, Getty Images, and now Zuora also. We just signed a partnership. But what is interesting now, we are changing our business model. And we didn't think about that, obviously, which is another thing when you found a company the input at the beginning is totally different from the output five, six years later, is that more and more also institutional players are coming now to us, banks and acquirers that operate in Europe or in the US, because they are looking for a last mile into this region for their existing clients. We never thought about this, but the more and more we build technical infrastructure, the more and more we moved away from being a service company that operated on a white-label solution, we moved into building own infrastructure and through that into a technology company, which is also a cultural change. And this is the phase where we're in now at the moment. Exactly. Having a strong and international network was clearly very important for the success of El Pago. I asked Waverly Deutsch of the Chicago Booth School of Business to comment on Philip's story. Every startup needs those partnerships. They're too small to do everything themselves. It's an absolutely critical thing for companies. What is not easy at all is to do that across borders, across geographies, across cultures. You know, I think Philip starts with the advantage of having lived in multiple cultures, having worked in multiple cultures. And it is very telling in his story, I think, when asked, you know, why Berlin? 
he says, well, you know, when it comes to customers, that's where my biggest network is. So finding partnerships is absolutely critical. And you have to have a network that can help you as an unknown, untested startup with that trusted introduction that's going to allow somebody to take a chance on you. So this idea that the internet gets rid of distance isn't exactly true. No, I don't think it does at all, especially when you're talking about entrepreneurial ventures. Everybody asks, you know, why don't we talk about global entrepreneurship? Because entrepreneurship is fundamentally local. You have to start small. It has international components and it may grow into a global venture. But what makes Alpago successful is Philip's ability to localize it to the Brazilian market, which has really different characteristics than other payments processing markets that larger companies would go after. And it's that localization that makes entrepreneurship so successful. Now, the fact that Philip's customers were global companies like McAfee, he still needed to have those feet on the ground in Brazil working with the banks and the acquirers in Brazil to be able to offer his services. So I think the internet has made the world smaller, but it hasn't made it less diverse. And how do you ensure you don't overstretch yourself? That is the big question. And I think Philip shows that he's managed this very delicately in his story. It's really easy to lose focus. And I think he was very, very clear that starting in Brazil, where he had personal networks, personal experience, professional experience, conquering that market was a little bit lucky for him because it was so complex that when he started to expand out to other parts of Latin America, he had really dealt with the hardest problems by being in Brazil. He started this company in 2010. He's in Mexico and Colombia, and and he's reaching for the next few markets in Latin America. So investors will always talk about staying focused and not extending yourself too far. And I think he's walked that line really well. What does Philip see as the most useful message he can pass on to other would-be entrepreneurs? The thing I think very importantly for every founder is you're very lonely because at the beginning you cannot talk about certain challenges or problems. So what helped me a lot was building up advisory board. So I was yesterday here with one of our advisory board members, Raymond Lowe, who I can call up any given time and who gives me good advice. So building that up was very important for me to share your challenges. On the other side, also within your team as you grow, you build up people and they have to believe in your company because they're not there because of the great salaries, right? And they obviously have options, but it's the company they believe in. And now it's easier because you can distribute challenges. I don't like to say problems, but challenges, right? And that helps me. And then obviously now I'm turning 40. I'm going to become father in the next three weeks. So I think also these moments in life, they help you to understand what's really important and that it's business, right? Your company is only business. And if this business would not work out, yes, it's terrible. And yes, you can say it's unfair. You put so much energy in, but you still have your family, you have your friends. And I think these moments are very important to keep that in your mind, that you don't become also obsessed with your own idea, right? Uh, This is, I think, a very important thing. (laughs) We've come to the end of our current series of FT Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed it. Look out for the next series, which will be coming up later in the year. In the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, you can visit our special page, ft.com slash startup. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.